0: This is a Village Soundcast Network original production.
1: Hello, and welcome to another edition of Lends Me Your Ears, the film podcast that takes a look at new films in theaters and on streaming platforms and connects them to films from days gone by, whether it's through the actor that stars in them or perhaps a director or perhaps a genre. And today it's all about genre. We're, we're taking a deep dive into the month that is now known as November. Uh, and looking at some of our favorite and new-to-us film noir titles from the 40s and 50s, the classic film noir era. My name is Stephen Cook, and I'm a multimedia journalist with the Chronicle Herald and the SaltWire Network here in Halifax.
0: My name's Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer. I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris you can find at HalifaxBloggers.ca. And we're going to take a
1: walk down some rain-soaked back alleys and into some gin houses and poker
0: parlors right after this message. As you said, Stephen, today on Lens Me Your Ears, we are diving into November at the very tail end of November 2021. Um, a little different this episode, but you know we we do this from time to time. We we stretch the boundaries of our mandate, and uh, we're just going to have fun with this. Uh, you know, digging into this dark American crime dramas of the 1940s and 50s. Now, I can't imagine anyone listening to the podcast who wouldn't know about this specific genre, film noir, as it's called. We've covered neo noir movies before, uh, sort of an updating of this genre. But but I should probably say a little bit about what film noir is. It sprung out of Hollywood during world War II and especially in the post-war period inspired by American crime fiction of the 1930s and and then the look of German expressionism in the 20s a lot of stark black and white images and visuals tales of desperate men and women well mostly men uh usually in an urban setting and the world they live in is one of compromised ethics and values and a healthy dose of cynicism I guess the theory is that after the war you know America lost a little bit of its innocence and And uh, people were interested in these kinds of stories. Uh, Film noir also includes... Some tropes include the femme fatale, the beautiful woman who frequently ends up betraying the hero, which I guess to me is often seemed a sort of reflection of some kind of baked in misogyny, men always needing someone to blame outside of themselves and finding the mystery of dames, as they call them, an easy target. But this is still, I think, one of my favorite genres, despite the problems, some of the problems with it. Um, it's the way it looks, the long shadows and the high contrast images, uh, and the way it imagines a world of grays, of 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 compromised characters and high stakes. These stories are frequently compelling and they still, I think, have some things to tell us seventy years later. Oh, sure. This is
1: a deep dive into the dark side of human nature. And the the great thing about noir is that it was it kind of spread like a like a virus almost, because you find noir elements in other genres. It's I don't think other genres influenced noir so much as it kind of filtered out into, you start to see it show up in Westerns with the the lighting and the darker themes and the more adult concerns, uh, you know, that, that beyond what we would find in your average, you know, uh, Roy Rogers and Gene Autry kind of film and, and, and you'd find elements of it even in musicals, you know, you, you get into things like a star is born or, um. You know, the there's there's some other musicals in the fifties that actually incorporate adult modern themes into uh you know, into their uh not all sunshine and roses kind of storylines. So it's it's something that and then there are comedies that that uh, incorporate uh, noir ideas, themes and character actors and so on. So it's it's it had, you know, pretty deep roots even then. Although of course it wasn't, you know, didn't wasn't immediately called film noir. That's kind of what the I think it was the French film critics who really seized on what were American crime pictures, I guess, for lack of a better term, uh, and um, and noticed that certain elements of style and theme and and certainly uh, certain actors um, were cropping up again and again in these pictures, and and kind of connected the dots, and and it's kind of a a genre that existed in spite of itself almost in a way
0: you mentioned the french film critics of course in france they picked it up as well there are plenty of french films that that followed this this arc maybe a little later but uh but we've watched a few of them as well
1: oh yeah well uh, uh, melville obviously is probably the biggest example of that uh and then of course in the french new wave adapted it into their own kind of radical take on cinema Uh, certainly uh godard and truffaut were big fans of the genre and love to subvert its ideas in their own film. So it's hugely influential. Of course, you know, the, 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 you mentioned neo-noir. We've done at least one show, if not two, about, about the more recent, um, adaptations of, of the, the style and themes of film noir into a, into a modern setting. It seems endlessly adaptable. I, I in even, a, even a, you know, a recent film, like say like something like brick or even maybe even knives out to a certain degree, you know, that it keeps coming back in interesting and unusual ways. And, uh, and there's a good reason for it. It's because the films at the heart of this are really, really good.
0: Yeah, and it's great to have an opportunity to watch them. Of course, these perennial themes, you know, they, they, you can't ignore the darkness in the heart of human beings. And I, I think this, a lot of these films get to the core of that. Uh, and and we started with one, we started chron- chronologically. We're going to look at our eight or so movies today. I'm uh, starting with Double Indemnity from 1944, which I think might've been the first film noir I ever saw. I think I saw it maybe back in high school the first time. Um, uh, directed by Billy Wilder, written by Raymond Chandler, you know, one of the great names of crime fiction uh, American crime fiction, adapting a novel by James M. Kane. Um and it's funny because I remember Fred McMurray was I mean, I wasn't necessarily a fan of of his TV work, but that's how I think I knew him in terms of a, a character actor. Oh, yeah, Disney films and My Three Sons. Yeah, sure. yeah, and it's so it's so odd to see him here in a hard-bitten kind of role, uh, you know, dialogue with lines like, crazy about you, baby, uh, and just the way you want it, straight down the line, you know, that kind of thing. It's, he plays Walter Neff, who narrates the whole story one night Late at his office at at an insurance company, he details the plot that he and Phyllis Dietrichson put together to write up a policy for double indemnity accident insurance for her husband and then murder him in order to collect that insurance. A sweet 100 grand. Much of the movie is how they strike up the plan, how they enact it, and how it starts to unravel later on um, and uh, you know Barbara Stanwyck of course playing the playing Phyllis there's a name you don't hear much of anymore <laughs> um, or, or Barbara for that matter uh, it is the, maybe the only movie I can think of that makes insurance sound like an interesting business and it makes us in the audience complicit in Walter and Phyllis's plan and we sort of want them to get away with murder that's something I remember the first time I saw it too going wow this is no wonder this was such a big hit this is such a, a remember as a i should say as a, as a sort of masterwork of the genre because it does it does draw you in and and make you feel like you're in the back seat with them as they're planning the murder of this of this this man who who we only know basically based on on her saying so that he's a bad guy.
1: Yeah, this is uh this is an amazing film for its time and the uh you know the kind of film that they had to send the script back numerous times to tone it down, uh, with the, uh, you know, with the, 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 uh, the Breen office, I guess, who, uh, had to approve every script for production. And, and even so there's still some really amazing lines that, that make it in there. Like, you know, when, when Neff first goes to Phyllis's house and she comes out wrapped in a towel and he's talking about insurance and he says, I'd hate to see you not fully covered, you know, stuff like, (laughs) stuff like that, Like, like the, I mean Wilder knew how to push buttons and, and 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 stretch limits he did it through his whole career and he's, he's even doing it here um with 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 these two and it's uh it's you know incredibly dark and sour look at humanity and yet it got what like seven academy award nominations something like that like this was a big hit it wasn't some weird little thriller that lurked at the edges of the the grindhouse theaters and B movie bills this was like a glossy you know, a line production from Paramount with, uh, and Stanwyck, uh, was about as big a star as you could get in those days and, uh, and people ate it up. So, you know, there was an audience, uh, this is at 44th. So the the war is still on, uh, when, when this came out. So it's, it's not just a post-war thing. You can see that people at this time really got into these characters and, and the pretty tense situation they find themselves in as their plot a comes together and B falls apart, and uh, you know with that that unholy trilogy that you mentioned of of, of Wilder, um, Raymond Chandler and Kane, who, Of course, a lot of his books were uh, turned into great film noirs, like the The Postman Always Rings Twice, uh, among others. And uh, you know the, those three minds working together cooked up something pretty dark and brutal and brilliant and hilarious too. Because the dialogue, I, I feel like this is. The Rosetta Stone for the Coen Brothers. I feel like almost everything they know about writing and making movies has some root in this movie.
0: Yeah, I'm. I absolutely agree. Yeah, that's you. you can get that sense for sure. The the I would say the best thing in *Double Indemnity* is Edward G. Robinson as. Barton Keys. He's the claims manager at the insurance company. And I think the key relationship, no pun intended, is between Keys and Walter, because they're the ones who really care about each other. Walter is, and, and it feels more like Walter has sort of cheated on his mentor on the rules of insurance and the rules of law and done this terrible thing with Phyllis and uh, Robinson gives this incredible monologue mid movie about suicide and how the company has volumes of statistics about the different ways people commit suicide, the studies that show the odds of people doing it in certain ways. And yeah, that might be my favorite scene in the whole movie It's just like, like how committed. Keys is to the work he does, and it's so much a part of his identity. You know, he has this little man inside him that tells him when something's wrong. <laughs> and it's, little man, I and love it's that. Line. Talking to him all the time. Yeah, he is amazing, and uh and you know Edward G. Robinson, ah, Edward G., You know, it's <laughs> like that that thing that kind of his image, almost his reputation, his image superseded him. You know, in years afterwards, obviously the Ten Commandments and things like that. But uh, but this is where he is, I think, at his best.
1: Yeah, and. Uh, the uh in the in the extras i think on the commentary on my dvd copy of this they talk about how uh he didn't want to do this film initially because it meant uh going from being a you know a top billed star to playing a sort of supporting character role but at, i guess at some point he looked at where his career had been headed at that point since uh, starring in Little Caesar in the early 30s and his starring roles hadn't been that great. I think he recognized a good script when he saw one and it definitely paid off for him. He's he's so great in here and I love yeah, you're right. The interaction between him and Neff is 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 tremendous. Every time they just exchange barbs and you know, uh, it's, it's, you know, Neff says I love you too. <laughs> just <it's> just <laughs> you know, just cracks me up.
0: Yeah, for sure. And it was it was really nice to be able to rewatch this film and discover that Double Indemnity is has not lost a step in terms of its intensity and its entertainment value over the years. Uh, One of the films we watched that I had never seen before, also from 1944. uh, It's available on Criterion, which has a great the Criterion channel has a terrific selection of uh, noir right now, uh, many of which on our list, uh, we watched on the channel. But uh, Laura, from 1944 is a movie that I really also was impressed with. And this was my first watching it. Um, and uh, and it, it starts, again, with a voiceover narration. Only I, Walter Lidecker, knew Laura. <laughs> and uh, we meet this character in his gaudy New York home in a marble bathtub. He's played by Clifton Webb. Quite a a writer and character. Laura Hunt, who he's talking about, played by Gene Tierney, has been murdered by shotgun. Uh, Now, Waldo, as the sort of center of the story, at least in the first act, gets all the best lines. Uh, At one point, he says, you're a vague sort of fellow, aren't you, Carpenter? Uh, (laughs) At some reason, you know, the detective in the murder case, uh, Mark McPherson, played by Dana Andrews, agrees that waldo should accompany him on the sort of reviewing of all the suspects even though waldo is one of the suspects that's the the biggest leap i think that the uh the film uh makes but uh yeah so we we basically wander around and uh, the the detective interviews other people laura knew including her potential fiance, Shelby Carpenter, a very young Vincent Price. Almost didn't recognize him. He's so broad (laughs) and and tall. And oily. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah. He's he's so not creepy, but he you know he he definitely feels like a complete phony. But he kinda knows it. So he play he plays to the plays to that, which is the beauty of his character and performance.
0: And I would never have have made him for that kind of character, given what he played later in his career, all the sort of creepy ooky characters. But uh, no, he's he's really good here. And then, uh, yeah, and I, Andrews is wonderfully deadpan. He goes around playing with this little sort of toy where he tries to get the, the you know three balls into these little holes, and this, uh, and uh, it, and it's such an odd little character affectation. Uh, he also gets a great line. I don't know a lot about anything, but I know a little about practically everything, <laughs> which sounds kind of like a journalist to me. Um, now, we get the whole story about how, how Waldo uses influence to mentor Laura in this sort of wealthy world in which they move in to help her rise in her career in advertising. He ends up dressing her, changing her hair and introducing her to all the movers and shakers. He falls in love with her, but it's unclear what their relationship really is like. He, he almost wants to possess her and it hardly seems like it's sort of sexual. Um, uh, Of course, the big surprise in the second act... Uh, I don't know if I should say. Do we want to spoil a, a movie made in 1944? Uh, in, anyway, Laura's, I'm going to go with, go for it. Laura's not actually dead. It was somebody else, but who is responsible? And uh, I just, I so enjoyed this. Uh, and I enjoyed the fact that it's that it does this weird thing structurally where Waldo is so much a part of the story at the beginning, but then kind of vanishes in the second half and then returns. But by then, we've got to know other characters. It, it's it's a rare thing for a film to take a central character. Character like that and shift them off the center stage and allow other characters to to bubble up uh, well yeah. it's an unusual film on so many levels
1: because of the structure because of that mid film twist and uh which i uh, this is probably the fourth time i watched laura and i the first time i watched it i did not see that coming i did not see that no i didn't either no you know, and it should have occurred to me that and maybe because i wasn't you know, Jean Kearney maybe isn't as well remembered as she should be these days, but you know, she's a pretty major star at the time. And I should have, maybe that should have been enough to clue me in that, uh, you know, they weren't just going to do a Marion crane on her psycho and Janet Lee and, and bump her off, you know, right out, right off the bat. But, um, uh, it, it was a shock to me at the time and, uh, sorry if I've ruined it for anyone. And, uh, I already ruined it. Well, yeah, so there, you there you go. go. <laughs> there you go. We've, we've already spoiled it. So, uh, but and and Tierney's great, uh, you know, kind of in the middle of this, you know, murder case, but sort of maintaining her composure and and you know trying to see the the real woman behind this kind of society facade that Waldo has helped her create. Uh, I think it's a really great performance, and certainly one one of the great female performances in film noir. And and Waldo Lidecker is just one of the great unforgettable characters in in this uh, category of film. Clifton Webb is just uh, so full of of acid and, uh, poison, you know, <laughs> like when, so it, was it, somebody asked him to sign something and he says, I don't use a pen, I use a goose quill dipped in venom. Mm,
0: <laughs> you know, yes, just, that's
1: right. Every, everything he says is a bon mot and, uh, and, and worth remembering really. And, uh, it's, yeah, it's just, it's just that, that, that ripping the lid off of society kind of aspect of the film that's, that's so much fun. And, and it was sort of like, you know, kind of like all about Eve a few years later, but you know, with a, with a murder at the, at the heart of it. And, and, um, of course I think the reason I probably watched it in the first place was the connection to Twin Peaks, um, you know, that, that many elements in this film show up in uh, David Lynch's Twin Peaks. And I, I don't know if he came out and actually said what a big influence Laura was on it, but it was, if you saw the film, it was pretty immediately obvious because of the Laura Laura Palmer you know, the, the 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 similarity in the character names the fact that the detective becomes obsessed with this beautiful dead young woman uh Waldo Lidecker Waldo was the name of the minor bird <laughs> in Twin Peaks and there's another character named Lidecker um his name I, f- I forget exactly. He was a minor character. I can't—not a minor character, but a minor character. <laughs> nice uh, one. And I, <laughs> um, and and then there's also a little bit made up of uh, Laura's diary is also um, mentioned in Laura, and of course was a huge part of Twin Peaks. So uh, it's kind of a, it was kind of a touchstone, especially at a time when Twin Peaks was first airing, and everybody wanted to know everything about what was going on in, in that series and where all the influences was, were, and it kind of gave this film a little boost, kind of revived it a little bit. I don't think it was as well remembered or as well known. Of course it got a reissue at the time and uh, on Laserdisc even, and, uh, it had this nice little revival and, and, uh, also I think maybe it, Otto Preminger directed it, uh, his earlier films, uh you know, whirlpool where the sidewalk ends. I mean, he made these great film noirs, uh, angel face, I think is another one with, uh, Robert Mitchum. They're all really terrific, uh, examples of the genre, but you know, he kind of became better known for these taboo breaking films that he would move on to things like, uh, the man with the golden arm about heroin addiction and, uh, the moon is blue, which had more adult, uh, adult language about sexuality in it and, and so on and so forth. Um. And he sort of, his earlier work, where he was just, you know, really solid craftsman making these uh, very intense and very uh, gripping uh, thrillers, uh, that part sort of has been a little bit, bit better um, acknowledged since uh, Laura kind of came back into the spotlight. Welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears as we wrap up Noir Vember, the uh, month long celebration. Of film noir. If you didn't feel like growing a mustache, you could always stay at home and watch detectives and thugs and uh, femme fatale duke it out on the mean streets of uh, Hollywood black and white uh, films. (laughs) For those who are into growing mustaches. Exactly. (laughs) Well, I, I have a beard, so I guess it's technically part of the whole package but th- this next one is is one that we some of these were just kind of picking out of thin air and uh, this is a film that i enjoyed returning to even though as Karsten and i both agree its plot is completely implausible uh but, but that's the fun of these sometimes is just seeing how it can take a ludicrous concept and uh, just kind of run with it uh, i mean even in double indemnity i think the plot of that if you wanted to po- poke some holes in it you could but uh, this one you definitely could and it's Phantom Lady directed by Robert Sydmack who uh, made some pretty terrific film noir pictures maybe not top echelon films but certainly great examples of of the genre and and um this is his first so he's obviously just kind of feeling his way this is the film he made his previous film to this was Son of Dracula with Lon Chaney Jr playing uh was it Dr. Alucard, <laughs> We he played this, this guy who his, his alias was to spell Dracula backwards. So, uh, so he's still kind of coming up out of the B pictures, uh, with Phantom Lady. And he'd go on to make the spiral staircase, the killers, uh, Crisscross, which is uh, a, a really great, um, heist gone wrong movie starring Burt Lancaster that was remade by Steven Soderbergh as I think the underneath, uh, so, uh, you know, th- th- there's a film that's obviously highly regarded. Phantom Lady, not so much, but uh but fun nonetheless for some of its uh you know film noir elements that that make it kind of fun the fact that it a it looks great it's it's a great looking film but um uh, it, it doesn't necessarily have a great lead uh because we have alan curtis uh played uh playing scott henderson alan curtis is you know one of those kind of forgettable 1940s leading men who's who's an engineer who. Uh, is going out for a night on the town. His wife stands him up. So he, he meets this woman in a bar and and uh, she seems to be in some sort of emotional distress and he decides to be a, a knight in shining armor and and cheer her up because he's got two tickets for a show and he's going to take her to the show and and uh, she's obviously having some sort of emotional trauma and he's trying to cheer her up and, and make her night or whatever. And so they go to this uh, fairly cheesy review, this kind of Latin music review, and, uh, and she's wearing this outrageous hat that, uh, you can't help but notice. And then the, the woman in the lead in the play happens to be wearing the same hat and, and gets visibly upset on the stage at seeing someone in the audience wearing her hat. And, uh, the drummer played by Elisha Cook Jr., who's always a welcome presence in these films, he's, he's winking and making eyes at, uh, this, uh, this phantom lady, as it were. And, uh, and so it goes. This, uh, you know, this the, we're clearly being set up for something because all these elements are being introduced uh, on what would normally be fairly innocuous uh, kind of occasion. And uh, so, anyway, so Scott Henderson uh, gets home and finds his wife has been strangled. Actually, she. I think he gets home and the the apartment's already full of cops. And there, of course, they're the typical, you know, tough-edged, wisecracking cops, kind of making making jokes at his expense and that kind of thing. And obviously. Fingering him right away as, as the potential suspect, and so, uh, you know, he he wants to clear his name because he you know he he has his alibi. He was at this show with this woman that he met in the bar. Surely uh, surely that would cover him. And then of course uh, his alibi completely falls apart. He there's a great jail a uh, great courtroom sequence with uh, the voice of the judge. You don't actually see what's happening in the courtroom, it's all reaction shots for the most part and the voice of the judge and the the prosecutor and all that kind of thing. And so he's in, he's in jail, an expressionist jail, because they show him in jail and it's just, you just light through a window and a railing. That's, that's, you know, uh, that's it. But he's got this plucky secretary played by Ella, Ella Raines. Carol Richmond is his secretary. She knows he's innocent. She's going to prove his innocence. And so she takes it upon herself to, um, to chase down all these people who were ostensibly witnesses to his night on the town and try and figure out, A, you know, who really killed his wife and B, who's trying to set him up for it. And that's basically how it plays out. And uh, as, as uh, Carson noted, that the plot of this film is pretty threadbare. It's based on a Cornell Woolrich uh, novel. And uh, he was often great at coming up with amazing concepts and ideas in terms of story ideas, not always so great on the follow through. And uh, I think that shows here, but uh, this is, you know, this is like a second tier. It's a B picture really given the cast and everything. But, uh, but Ella Raines is, uh, is quite appealing as Carol, as she, you know, takes the lead on, on solving this mystery. She has some help from the sympathetic detective, although it doesn't go too far out of his way to help her, which is another uh, kind of weird bit in the story that, that uh, he, he, could be a little more helpful and uh and you know we watch her kind of go through the paces playing detective and, and wondering if she should just give it all up and go back to kansas in fact everyone makes fun of the fact that she's from kansas and she's living in the big city or you know her boss calls her kansas for crying out loud and
0: yeah um, he she he calls her kansas and she calls him mister you know mr henderson and it's just like oh come on yeah really? they, they lay it on pretty thick but
1: uh you know for for a breezy uh noir uh, B picture uh, directed by a guy who you know had come from Germany knew a thing or two about filmmaking if not maybe a good script um, you know lays it on pretty thick with the atmosphere and the the lighting and, and some of the set pieces are, are really well done so uh, I think uh, I think some of the parts might be more than the whole with the case of phantom lady but it's certainly worth seeing uh, just for for those elements that work
0: yeah, I mean, I agree with you. The elements do work. There are parts of the cinematography and, and setup. There are some character notes that are pretty great. But yeah, the scenario is so implausible. I mean, it's so full of holes that it's hard to like <laughs> leap off of it. I, the, the idea that um, this guy would go to a bar and go to a show with someone he doesn't know and be, be accepting of the fact that she doesn't want to give her name. And they're just not going to talk about names, you know. And so he doesn't know her name. And then she's wearing this outrageous hat. And then the woman on stage is wearing the same outrageous hat. And then he gets back to find his wife has been murdered. And he has this alibi. And so the bartender and the taxi driver... They are interviewed and they remember him. They recognize him. It's just the fact that they don't remember the woman he was with, which apparently blows a hole in his alibi. But you think really? I mean, he was there. Okay. So maybe he was confused about the woman, but he was not in the apartment when his wife died because the bartender and the taxi driver corroborate that. So all right there. I'm just like, why is he, why is he going to prison? Why would (laughs) it, why would a jury convict him? Like it just doesn't quite make sense. And that's the problem I had with the film. now, once you get past that and you get into sort of Carol becomes the lead character, then there's actually quite a lot to enjoy because she is so dogged. Her plan to try to figure out what's happened basically goes back to that bar and sits and stares at the bartender for night after night after night, knowing basically that he's been bought out. Like he's, you know, obviously he's he's covering he's he's been bribed to to lie. And uh, and I, I appreciated her kind of like uh, intensity, you know, her detective work and her her her. Willingness to dress up and play a character in order to get to the truth of this thing. Why though she is falling in love? I mean, clearly she's in love with her boss because uh, he's kind of a chump. Uh, really, that's part of the problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I guess I guess they can get a
1: solid lead to play a character who's off screen and in jail for most of the running time. You know, he obviously he's there for the setup, and then he's kind of sidelined while Ella goes about her business. And uh, so you know, you you kind of, and I, I'm sure. I'm sure the director knew what he was had to work with in terms of, uh, his cast and everything. And that's, I think that's why they put so much focus on Ella Raines, just cause she's so charming. And, uh, like when she has to play a so-called bad girl, uh, you know, by putting on a, a cheap dress from the five and dime and chewing gum and trying to get some info out of, uh, Cliffy, the drummer, uh, you know, that, that's a great scene. And, and when they go to the jam session, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty amazing Yeah, with with
0: Elijah Cook, like, you know, banging the drums maniacally uh, with the lighting and the camera up in his face. That I really actually did enjoy. Yeah, for sure. Um, You know, and and eventually it becomes the conspiracy comes out and it becomes kind of this odd like proto serial killer movie because the suspect – is you know is kind of discounted right away for being he's too normal you know the cop says you know it's always simple to find the murderer because they're insane and then it then it becomes like is he insane is he not you know there's all these other elements that creep into it in a kind of Almost, I would say, all horror movie sort of way. It's a thriller, it's a suspense thriller, but there's also horror elements, and that comes into the cinematography. And and uh, yeah, I mean, there are there are things about it to appreciate once you get past the outrageousness of its central conceit. Um, but uh, yeah, well, it's from the director of *Son of Dracula*. After all, <laughs> <laughs> um, we should talk uh, next about *Out of the Past* from 1947. This this is a film that I had heard about; its reputation preceded it, but I had not seen it until. This week, it's directed by Jacques Tournier and uh, written by Daniel Mainwaring under the pseudonym Jeffrey Holmes. Uh, from his 1946 novel, Build My Gallows High. And this is an amazing film. Uh, Robert Mitchum plays Jeff Bailey, living in some little town down the road, maybe somewhere in California, except he used to be Jeff Markham, a guy who finds people, kind of a private investigator. Back in New York, a couple of years ago, he'd been paid $5,000 to find Kathy Moffat, played by Jane Greer, uh, by a rich fellow named Witt Sterling, played by Kirk Douglas. Now, Kathy shot Witt, though he survived, and took with her $40,000. Well, uh, what happened is Jeff found her, all right. He tracked her to Mexico, to Acapulco, but he's fallen in love with her, and he's lied to wit, and he said he hadn't found her. So Jeff and Kathy go to San Francisco to hide out, and they are happy for a while, and Kathy told Jeff that she had never taken the money. But then everything goes to hell when (laughs) Jeff's old partner tracks them down, and uh, he ends up dead, And Jeff realizes that Kathy has lied about the money and then we're back in the present and Jeff's telling this whole story to his new girlfriend played by Virginia Houston. And before he goes to meet wit to settle things with him, but Kathy's gone back to wit and then wit has a new assignment for Jeff. It's like the plotting of this is so uh, perfectly paced and, uh, and so unexpected. Like that was one of the things I loved about the film is the it corkscrews from one scene to another with some of the most deft hard-boiled dialogue I've ever heard. It's practically poetry, and it's very sharp. And then the plotting—you just have no idea where it's headed, and the twists come thick and fast. Uh, it is, uh, yeah, it's like I'm—I'm I'm almost disappointed I hadn't seen it before now because this is a movie. It's truly one of the best noirs I've ever seen.
1: Yeah, this is probably my favorite film with that label of film noir is uh, out of the past, just because. Uh, well, first of all, Robert Mitchum. Is is you know the ultimate icon of it uh, for me anyway. Uh, I know some people might look to say like a Humphrey Bogart or or, or what have you, but but Mitchum uh, he's just he just fits into this like a comfortable shoe. Like he he just belongs in this kind of movie. And uh, before this, you know he he'd kind of been playing sort of you know more conventional leading man kinds of roles, but uh, you know in this film he's you know just. The, the shade of the shades of gray that he's able to play in his character and in characters and similar movies that would follow is just phenomenal that, that just that laconic ease with which he goes through, you know, goes through life really is, is, uh, is really, uh, I feel like it's something that Hollywood hadn't really seen up to that point. And then it's what made him kind of a, uh, kind of an unconventional star. The fact that he got busted for marijuana and then completely cruised past it without blinking an eye he did some time and then it was like nothing happened you know he just could he just just couldn't phase this guy and i think that really uh you know that informs his characters to a great degree you know you want to see how he handles things you know he can be tough when he needs to be but he's he's not gonna he's he's gonna try and not get into a scrape that he can't get out of and uh and his his just his his way of dealing with with hotheads and and uh you know and conniving women and 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 uh you know, thugs, it's just, he, he just, you know, keeps his cool in every, uh, every instance, but not in, you know, in a believable way. It just, it just feels so, so Mitchum and the, the, this has style up the yin-yang. I mean, every shot is like, like a, you know, some sort of charcoal sketch. It seems it's, it's just one of the most beautiful and evocative, uh, of its type, you know, we've got, we've got this sort of just sort of straight up outdoors, outdoorsy stuff that kind of contrasts with the, the the shadows and the the smoke and the the dimly lit rooms and everything it's it's really it's really got that great contrast between the real world and the noir world kind of wrapped up in a in a nutshell and I think I think it's it's really kind of the ultimate film noir in terms of how it has all the elements and and all the themes all wrapped up in one
0: I also like that it has good roles for women yes. in the movie which is unusual for a lot of these films which are so men centric uh, Rhonda Fleming as Meta another character who uh, who we meet uh, further down the road. Uh, she's great, makes a great impression here. Uh, yeah, I agree with you on the moody nighttime scenes, gorgeously shot in San Francisco to com- you know, contrasting with the exteriors in places like Tahoe. Um, and I just, I like the themes of, of the movie. Generally, the man who makes mistakes, tries to get himself clean, you know, for someone who he really loves to make himself worthy of her, but he keeps getting pulled back into the old world. Um you know, I, I, uh, Jane Greer is possibly one of the most demonic uh, antagonists ever. Like her, her scenes are incredible. And I love in the end, there's a scene where she's basically dressed like a nun in the last <laughs> yes. scene. And she couldn't be more sinister.
1: <laughs> yeah, and this was, I mean, she was completely cast against type in this role too. That's the amazing, I mean, she was usually playing nice girls or ingenues or whatever up to this point. And, and here she's completely doing a 180 on, on what, the roles of people newer for. And I think that obviously that's going to be a strength because you're not prepared for how dark her character gets over the course of the film and uh, some, some genius uh, casting
0: and, and she totally pulls it off too. Yeah, for sure. Um, now, before we wrap up this segment uh, on in our noir visit, uh, we want to talk about Panic in the Streets from 1950. That's the also available on Criterion, directed by Elia Kazan, written by Richard Murphy, Daniel Fuchs, and Edna Anhalt. Um, and we start in this film Uh, on the grimy side side of New Orleans, a, a dude in the late night gambling den rubs wrong three other bad guys who end up shooting him. When the cops find the body in the morning, a military doctor, Clinton Reed, played by the ubiquitous at the time, Richard Widmark, he figures out a couple of things about this fellow, he came in off a boat, and he has the plague. Uh, immediately makes sure all the cops and anyone who had contact with the body is inoculated, and he goes about cremating the remains. But, but who killed him? And is that person out there spreading the disease? So that's the crux of it. Woodmark is... Typically intense, he yells a lot of his lines, uh, except when he's in the company of his wife, played by the ever-patient Barbara Bel Geddes. She's she's quite good, but the scenes are, (laughs) I think, are the least interesting of the film. Much more compelling are the ones with Widmark and a police captain, played by Paul Douglas. At first, at odds, they soon find common ground in in trying to track these people down uh, running through New Orleans. Uh, You know, Also great are low-level gangsters, a terrifying Jack Palance as Blackie, the guy who pulled the trigger... And his buddies, Fitch, played by Zero Mostel, and Poldy, played by Tommy Cook. Um, you know, in some ways, this feels more of a straight-ahead thriller than some of the noir that we've seen. But, um, you know, because it's about a plague, uh, you know, it's like it, that, that, of course, has resonance to all of us these days. Uh, and it, it's really good at capturing the seedier side of, of New Orleans in the 1950s. Lots of great location cinematography.
1: Yeah, it's kind of funny considering how Kazan would return to New Orleans with Streetcar Named Desire and completely change the face of movie drama basically a few years later. But uh, th- yeah, this this film has tons of atmosphere, makes the most of its locations for sure. And, uh, you know, what what a great cast. Uh, uh, Palance, I think in his debut, because he's, he's billed as Walter Jack Palance. He's not even Jack Palance yet. He's still... Walt, you know, he just doesn't seem like a Walter, does he? You know, like Jack, Jack just seems so perfect for this guy who's got this, just penetrating gaze and that's kind of skull-like face. And, uh, you know, he, and he doesn't overplay it either as he, as he kind of would in, in later years. Like, you know, sometimes he seems kind of aff, almost affable and, but, you know, you just know he's like this tightly coiled snake who could just turn on you at any time. And I, I think that's a big part of, um, you know where the tension comes in in this film because he's he's you know he's such a loathsome character, kind of like a Lee Marvin would be in um, in the Big Heat, uh, the Fritz Lang film, which we're not talking about, but I recommend you uh, seeking out if uh, if you have a chance. Um, and the whole pandemic thing, of course, watching it now just feels so much different than when I first watched this film, you know, a decade or so ago for the first time, it just, you know, when, when they're in the morgue and, and all the guys who had contact with the body are lining up to get their inoculation. And some of the, some of the guys are going, Hey, what's in this stuff? You know, when they're trying to give them the serum, it just feels a little too close to home, but, uh, you know, that, that actually makes it all the more watchable now, uh, to, to see how how these kind of themes have been kicking around for for a while. And, you know, you wonder like, oh, they should be wearing
0: masks. Nobody's wearing a mask. (laughs) Uh, And
1: and and Mark's pretty great as the guy who's, you know, it starts off, he's just trying to have a day off and enjoy some time with his family and paint those drawers on the bureau and and uh and of course the phone call comes and he's got to go save the world again uh which is something that would become more of a cliche i think in later films you know with with cop films and so on um you know the 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 guy just can't catch a break and is working on this case 24 hours a day or whatever like that But, but but Widmark, i think really sells it with with how tired he gets and with you know needing to change his uniform when he worries it's infected and all that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, he's, uh, it's, it's, it's great to see him, uh, you know, play this, uh, you know, heroic, dogged investigator, uh, you know, after people had been used to seeing him play kind of crime bosses and psychos prior to this.
0: Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of the food podcast, but you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people. And their stories shared through the lens of food. The food podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. All right, and we're back on Lens Me Your Ears in our deep dive for Noir November. And uh, we're gonna talk now about a film from 1950, available again on the Criterion channel called No Way Out, directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz. And it's the debut of Sidney Poitier. A great role for him. He's, uh, you know, he's so young <laughs> and so great to see him. It's a very potent racial drama. Uh, and this feels as much an issue movie uh, as it is a noir drama. Though, um, you know, it is a little heavy handed for an issue movie in 1950, but it's still I, I didn't it's you know, it's not an embarrassing watch, which is in how it depicts racial hatred in America. And that's saying something for a movie that's 71 years old, it could have aged poorly. And I think it actually still works in its basics. Now, Poitier plays Dr. Luther Brooks. He's a young doctor working at the county hospital. He's the only African-American doctor there. Uh, one night, two criminals from a place called Beaver Canal. They keep talking about where they're from, Beaver Canal, which I can't be an actual place because it just it just makes me laugh. It just sounds a little too Freudian. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Um, they're brought in. They're both shot in their They've been both shot in the legs during a robbery. One of them is Ray, played once again by Richard Widmark. He is a vicious and violent racist uh, and doesn't like being treated by Dr. Brooks. Brooks thinks that the brother, who is catatonic at this point, might have a brain tumor. He gives him a spinal tap. And the patient dies. So Ray uh, accuses Brooks of murder. Now Brooks wants to do an autopsy on the dead man to confirm his suspicions, but the brother denies this request. Brooks and his mentor, Doctor Wharton, appeal to the dead man's wife, Edie, uh, and then the bad racist white boys of Beaver Canal get wind of what happened, and it prompts a race riot. All while Brooks is still trying to prove he did the right thing, but he is still very young, and he's insecure about his skills, and he's he's aware that maybe maybe he didn't do the right thing. Um so there's a lot I think about this movie to admire. I think the way it examines the open racism in American society with a very clear eye um, but yeah as I said it's sort of a weird amalgam of noir and message movie I think I like the message movie aspects of it more than the noir aspects um, but because noir sometimes feels can feel a little simplistic in a context where this stuff is going on but uh, yeah I really I, there were lots of things about it uh, mostly Sidney Poitier in the lead and I don't know if you recognize Ozzie Davis plays his brother who I, I was like I know that guy from Somewhere, and there it was like I'd never yeah. seen him so young either.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it, it's a pretty remarkable film for its time. I, I, it does feel of its time, but at the same time, there's aspects of it. Uh, you know, for for example, you don't expect to hear the n-word used so blatantly in a movie from 1950, and then and it's uh, I you know I wonder what kind of if yeah again with the the office stuff, but I feel like there was probably a real struggle to be able to portray you know racism as openly and nakedly as this film does but at the same time you kind of need to do that to really get to the core of, of certainly of, of widmark's character but also you know the, some the cops will throw around you know lesser racial epithets and 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 uh and make references uh to race and 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 so on and so I, th- I think it's it's uh, an interesting film in that it shows institutional racism in a way that I'm guessing a lot of films at the time had not addressed, certainly not from a major studio. And, uh, you know, I th- and Poitier-, Poitier gives a very um, poignant uh, and believable performance in the midst of it all. I, I think Widmark, you know, is a bit cartoonish, especially uh, towards the end, but uh, but Poitier really, you know, shows why he would go on to become a major star here. Uh, it's sort of telling that he doesn't get top billing. Like <laughs> The first title card is, um, you know, three actors that aren't uh, Sidney Poitier. And I find that kind of weird, considering he's the main character of the movie, uh, And uh, which just goes to show how Hollywood worked in those days. And... Um, you know that aspect of the film is is kind of an, an unfortunate relic, but but I, I find it I found it was pretty powerful, and I, whether or not it's a noir is is you know it's I, I tend to think that it's not, but it gets branded that way. Uh, it's, it's certainly been marketed that way over the years, and, and even Criterion's including it and in their lineup of uh, of noir titles from Fox. So uh, who am I to argue with Criterion? <laughs> Certainly, I mean, and you know, there there are elements of crime in it, uh, which I guess um, you know, it's 50s, it's black and white, it's crime, therefore it's a noir. Uh, you know, which isn't necessarily the most valid argument, but there are, like you say, the stylistic elements in it. The scene where um, all the all the white guys go to the junkyard to make uh, to make some impromptu weapons out of bits of scrap metal and stuff, that is a chilling scene. And that, that scene has stuck in my head since I watched this like a week ago. Uh, so, and it's just the way it's filmed and then the starkness of it and, and, uh, the implied violence, uh, that is there every time somebody picks up a piece of scrap iron or whatever, and thinking about how it could be a weapon, I think that is a really uh, powerful scene. And, and, uh. And I mean, Joseph Mankiewicz, the director, I mean, he's a, he's a really great a dramatic director and, and not necessarily a genre or a style director. And uh, I think he is responsible for making those scenes as powerful as they are.
0: Yeah. And I also really liked a surprise for me was Linda Darnell, an actor who I wasn't aware of previous to this as Edie Johnson. She's a, she's looking to shake off the mistakes of her past as the ex of the dead man, you know, and she has a connection to his brother. Uh, I thought she was terrific. And I look forward to seeing more of her work now that I feel like I've been introduced to
1: yeah, what she does. It's a pretty atypical role for her. I mean, she was a Fox contract player who's, you know, you often see her in a contract or sorry, in costume dramas and, and, and musicals and that kind of thing. So I think, I think this was a a bit of a stretch for her in terms of what she normally did at Fox, but I think she's terrific, um, as the, uh, the widow of, of the dead gangster from the start of the film and and her, her conflict, uh, between siding with the doctor and siding with her brother-in-law is, is, uh, it's pretty strong and she, she really, uh, she really you know, goes to places that I don't think she'd been to in her career before.
0: Uh, we should talk also about The Asphalt Jungle. This is another big title that I had somehow missed, a, a little bit of a blind spot in my uh, my viewing, and uh, I was so glad to see it. It's from 1950, directed by the legendary John Huston, based on the novel by W.R. Burnett, and it's a, set in a sprawling unnamed Midwestern city, apparently shot in Cincinnati. We, get, we start with a series of gorgeous established shots of a cop car driving around empty streets right away you get a sense that this is a city uh, of, of like grim realities uh, everything's kind of gone to seed and when we do meet people their easy morals and unpleasant compulsions. Uh, the cabbie recommends to his fair, I wouldn't go around this neighborhood with a suitcase. Some of these young punks might clip you just for a clean shirt. Um, it is such a well-made film. The, basically, the crux is Doc Re- Schneider, played by Sam Jaffe. He's, he's been behind the walls, in other words, in jail, but he's out now, and he's got a heist plan. The plot revolves around the various men who are recruited to participate and their various problems. Sterling Hayden is Dix, a southern with a gambling problem. He's a hooligan, a hard man who trades in violence. And he comes from a horse ranch, which his family lost. And he's dreaming of that sort of golden past and trying to get back to it. James Whitmore is Gus, who runs a grubby diner and is kind to cats. He's also (laughs) a driver, like a getaway driver. And uh, the money man is Emmerich, played by Louis Calhern, who's actually broke, but he's planning to double-cross his associates. And he's got a much younger girlfriend who calls him Uncle Lon, which is very... Very creepy, <laughs> um, played by Marilyn Monroe. But she's she's only in a couple of scenes. But she makes her mark. Um, yeah, it's it's a it is a powerful powerful film. Um, it's a film of a lot of people who are undermined by their appetites and their weaknesses. And uh, it also may be the most toxically masculine movie I've ever seen. For a noir, <laughs> it doesn't even have a femme fatale. Each one of the women here is under the thumb of one of the goons without any agency at all. Um, but, you know, it's – and then, it, yeah, there are. there's a lot of things to really like about the films. There are things to be cautious about. But it was – I thought it was very well made. Well, John Huston is my favorite director,
1: and, and uh, so I – you know, trust him to make an exemplary crime movie, and he does here. Of course, uh, his Maltese Falcon is often considered the, the sort of the major jumpstart to the film noir uh, style and movement. And and uh, so a decade later, here he is showing his expertise in and showing the young whippersnappers what he can do with the with the crime movie in terms of in terms of uh, not just atmosphere and 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 style, which this film has plenty of, but but also in terms of of, of a, a great gall- gallery of characters and uh, just a dark, deep seated motivations and and uh, double crosses and triple crosses. It's uh, you know it's so intricately layered, and and he seems to be masterfully pulling all the strings here in terms of of what happens and how these characters relate to each other. And and it's uh, yeah, this is probably the third time I've watched it. And uh, you know again, I see new stuff in this film every time I watch it.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I could see myself watching it again and again just to get all the intricacies of the plot and the characters. Uh, And it has has a lot of surprises. I mean, in the end, the police commissioner gives a speech to the press where he basically makes that thin blue line argument. What if the police weren't there? Whether they're good or bad, you know, he's basically excusing the corruption of the police, because if without them, you know, everything, what he says, <laughs> the jungle wins, the predatory beasts take over. And oh, <laughs> man, that, that's a little hard to swallow some years down the road. But uh, but as a, a time capsule, I think it it uh, it says a lot. Uh, yeah, I was really glad to see the asphalt jungle um, finally. And, uh, yeah, we have one more movie we want to talk about here before we wrap up our Noirvember, uh trip, and that is Niagara from 1953, directed by Henry Hathaway, written by Charles Brackett, Walter Reich, and uh, Richard L. Breen, and uh, maybe most famous for, you know, an early Marilyn Monroe uh, performance distinguished from other noir we've been watching by being in full color, and The Honeymoon Destination of Niagara Falls is shot without the kind of rundown sleaze it sometimes gets in movies like Disappearance at Clifton Hill that we've talked about on this podcast. (laughs) Uh, Basically, Monroe and Joseph Cotton are Rose and George, a couple staying at uh, Niagara Falls Motel. She's vivacious in that sort of patented Monroe way. He's bitter and twisted, apparently never having been the same since he returned from the war in Korea. And they're contrasted with another young couple who've come to stay at the hotel and see the sights. They're Gene Peters and Max Showalter as uh, the Cutlers, Polly and Ray. Uh, it's a little hard to believe these are actual people, especially Ray. Yeah. He's like, he works for shredded wheat in the Midwest and is thrilled to visit the local factory. They're just so cheery and clean cut and sitcom cardboard. It's hard to believe they're actual people, but then, you know, contrasted with them are Monroe and cotton who are very dark right out of the, the noir playbook. So yeah, it's, it's an odd movie. Just trying to get a, a sense of these are sort of different, differing tones along with this incredible location cinematography. Uh, but, uh, but you know, there's no doubt of Monroe's stardom. At one point, she sings along to the sort of theme song of the movie, Kiss, and she's got a great voice, too. And you're just like, wow, she's amazing. Yeah, definitely worth it for Marilyn. Uh,
1: supposedly the only time she played a quote-unquote bad girl. Uh, I think uh, she was under contract at Fox, and I think this was the first time they gave her a starring role. Uh, and uh, she really makes the most of it, for sure. I think... Uh, I think she knew it was at stake and, you know, would build a career on this and uh, she's fantastic. It's uh, directed by Henry Hathaway and who's kind of a, you know, famous for being a journeyman director of Westerns, crime thrillers. Uh, I'm not sure if he ever did a musical, but he's one of those guys who just, take whatever the studio threw at him, I guess. And um, But here, at least he's got a, a decent script to work from. Uh, you mentioned Charles Brackett as one of the screenwriters. He, of course, is most famous for having worked with Billy Wilder and famously did not want to work with Wilder on uh, Double Indemnity because he thought it was either too dark or just wouldn't make it past the censor board. And I, I don't know if that's where they had a falling out or, or what, but uh, it's interesting. We've kind of come full circle with, uh, with uh, Brackett picking up on something here that's still pretty dark. I mean, a, a guy is trying to, trying to kill his wife and vice versa and, uh, or he's, he's, uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's such a fun, twisty, turny plot. We don't mind some of the weird eccentricities of the film, like Max Showalter, who's, he, he's like, he's like been airlifted from a musical or something like that. He's, <laughs> he's, he's definitely acting in a different movie altogether, but, uh, but overall I, I found this uh, pretty Pretty gripping and entertaining.
0: Yeah, and there's that scene where George attacks Rose in the bell tower, and it's oh my gosh. so gorgeous and the long shadows and the bright red lighting. I mean, it, we talked in our last episode about uh, Giallo a little bit and about Mary, Mario Bava, and it's just, it feels like a predecessor to that. It's just so garish and over the top, um, as is the dialogue. Um, and it's funny because there's so much music, and it's very sort of Hitchcockian in some of the ways it, it is presented. And then the phenomenon with this boat that heads towards the falls and the helicopter rescue there's no music at all it's just there's some really interesting choices here and i i can't i wasn't quite sure what to make of it but niagara there that's it And that brings us to the close with a gunshot of "Lends Me Your Ears" for this uh, this episode, and I hope you've enjoyed our trip through Noir Vember. Uh, and uh, thank you so much for, for listening to us go on and on. Uh, much appreciated. If you want to reach out to us, we are available on Facebook. We have a Facebook page. We're also on Twitter, uh, on as Lends Me Your Ears. Uh, Stephen and I both have also our own Twitter handles. Mine's named after my film blog, Flaw on the Iris. Stephen, what's yours? Mine is at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. Many thanks to CKDU 88.1 FM here in Halifax for the studio facilities and for airing the show every second Tuesday at 5 p.m. Also, many thanks to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network. Thanks again to you for listening in, and we will talk again about films very soon.